0: as some of you may know, and as some of you may not, uh, every summer we do this series called Psalm Songs. Uh, And I just want to let you know, just in case you're not aware, what the idea behind that is. Okay. So every summer we, we like to take a popular song that you might hear on the radio, or probably more accurately these days, someone made you a Spotify playlist and it's somewhere
1: in there. Okay. A song that you might hear on a regular basis. And we want to tie that together to a psalm as in from scripture, so that any time and every time you hear that song, you are reminded of the psalm and the message that you heard. So that is
0: what Psalm Songs is all about. And now this morning, the wait is over. The time has come. Enjoy this song. So Tick
1: trivia note for any of you who are familiar with Mumford & Sons, there's an odd uh, vineyard connection the um, Marcus Mumford's parents John and Eleanor um, are longtime vineyard leaders from the UK that boy was raised right I don't know where he is I'm just saying he was raised right and uh, his folks are still very influential in the uh, vineyards worldwide and uh, lovely lovely people so uh, fun note about them my name is Janice I'm so pleased to be bringing the message with you this morning and can I just say um, our pastor who did the he, that was got to do the baptism right that's our senior pastor he's back next Next week, yes, we're excited about that. Uh, but you know how it is when he hasn't been in the in the pulpit for a while, uh, you might need to pack a pack of lunch. That's all I'm saying. You know what I'm saying? He's going to be loaded for bear. We're going to be glad to have him back. Well, today we are going to be looking at a couple of Psalms, but I'm going to mix it up a little bit. Uh, we're going to start in 1 Samuel 17, if you're looking for a spot to, to camp uh, with your devices or your Bibles that you brought with you, and we're going to define the problem, then we're going to answer it through the Psalms, right? And we're going to end up in Psalm 1 and Psalm 52. So that's kind of the architecture of where we're going today. That song that you just heard, I think the most common refrain in there was, I will wait. But that's not what I want to talk about. What I'm interested in is what he says before I will wait. And this is straight out of, the, out of the lyrics of the song. Now I will be bold as well as strong. I'll use my head alongside my heart. So take my flesh, fix my eyes. I told you as a church boy. Fix my eyes. I'll kneel down and know my ground. Right, The Bible is full of instruction about standing your ground, knowing your ground in order to stand. Uh, Paul talks about it to the Ephesians. You don't have to go there, but it'll be up on the screen. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, against the powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms... Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, because folks, it will come. When the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. See, in Ephesians, Paul is inviting uh, the, the church in Ephesus to become mature in their faith. He is saying, don't be blown around by every wind of doctrine, depending on how your version calls that, blown here and there by every wind of teaching Uh, by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful uh, scheming, instead, speak the truth in love. Well, unfortunately, in a democracy like ours, particularly on a weekend where we're getting ready to celebrate by blowing up everything we can find, and glory in a battle and a war that none of us personally fought, I think that some of us can get a little distracted by what it really means to stand our ground. What does that what does that really mean to us Now we can misplace that Now don't get me wrong I love history. Um, in a previous season of my life, I taught colonial American history at the college for several years. And I absolutely love digging into the, the primary resources of that and seeing some of the nitty-gritty details behind why the Revolutionary War was fought and how all that stuff happened. But here's what I, here's what I want to latch onto about that for you this morning. It's just a little side history note to go with it. Do you know that in the earliest days of the colonies, before we're actually a full-fledged United States of America, in the earliest days of the colonies, there is a distinct suspicion of any standing army. Now, a standing army is a foreign firm, a term for us, but a standing army means a professional army, meaning what we have today. People who are paid to be soldiers, they do their stint in the army, and that is their sole source of income. So they are, they're fighting for a paycheck, right? Right? Sort of, right? The the concern with that is if your sole reward for, for fighting in a war or, or your primary motivation for fighting in a war is that paycheck, then somebody else who comes along and gives you a better paycheck. That's a problem, right? Your loyalty is at question. We call those mercenaries. People who fight for a paycheck for any cause, we don't care, just give me the money. Then that We call that a mercenary. There was a distinct uh, concern, a mistrust of anybody who would do that. So that's why you had a fighting militia. You had a volunteer militia. That means these guys made their living off the land or in business, commerce, whatever it is, but because they owned land, they could be expected to defend their own little square plot of three feet, whatever it is that you own. We will trust you because your motives are pure. You would be willing to fight and defend your ground. There was a concern. Now, you all know the story, right? Maybe you don't. We actually did employ uh, Hessian soldiers. We actually did employ the French to come over and help us help us win. But there was still a distinct, mm, I don't know if we can trust these guys, right? Because they'll swing the other way if somebody else makes peace with them. So we, so we wanted people who actually were vested in the ground that they were defending, right? Because here was the thought. You cannot honestly fight for ground that you do not know. You cannot honestly fight and defend and passionately defend ground that you are not vested in. And I want to suggest to you this morning that when Scripture tells us to stand our ground, I think it's hard to stand our ground against the devil and his schemes if we do not have a personal connection to the ground that we're being told to defend, to the ground that we are committed to, a lot of us are really acting like mercenaries. We're running around trying to defend a truth that we really aren't deeply connected to. Now, I'm not talking about picking a fight on an internet, all right, or with anybody about some current you know, issue of the day or topic of the day. I'm talking about knowing your ground and recognizing a scheme of the devil, a, a recognizing a scheme to shake your faith, recognizing the scheme of the devil to make you mad, recognizing the scheme of the devil to make you doubt. So it seems fitting. On a weekend like this, uh, of celebrating battles of old, that we should look at a really famous battle in Scripture, um, that happens to be um, one where the author of the Psalms was involved. So, First Samuel 17. We're going to be living out of First Samuel 17 for quite a bit, and I'm going to read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk about. It, okay. Here we go. 1 Samuel 17. Now, the Philistines had gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soka in Judah. I don't know how to pronounce these places. I've never been there. That's not real important, right? They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soka and Ezekah, And Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites the other with the valley between them. A threat has been lodged and the threat has been matched. You've actually matched the threat. Now, the Valley of Elaw is a real place. It's a real spot. You can go visit it today if you want to do that. And you can see, you know, you look it up on YouTube. You can see the scope of this battle land. There's a dry riverbed that runs through it, easily the place where David would have picked up stones. And, you, and, and they even did a sound check. You can stand in the valley and holler up and you can hear it up on the hill. But but when you're occupied on these two opposing hills or cliff sides almost, you're out of range. You're out of arrow range, you're out of slingshot range, you're out of all that. So so you're fairly safe while you're up there just hollering at one another or, or whatever and challenging one another. But here's the deal. So you have these people who are going up and they're in position and in that moment, you're fairly equal. But you're equally in a stalemate. And here's the problem with, with the positions. Because you have this valley, the, the first force to actually advance is, is putting themselves at risk. Because now they're coming down the incline, now they are really becoming in range, and it's much harder to take a hill and to climb up the hill. So whoever decides to make that initiative first is at a disadvantage, and nobody's willing to do it. So we're just sitting on both sides and, and hollering at one another and making battle cries, and, and that's where we are. Folks, some of us today are living in a stalemate. I'm convinced of that. We're in a stalemate. We don't feel like we're completely losing, but we know we're not winning. Spiritually speaking, we are not taking any ground. We're barely defending the ground that we're in, maybe because we don't really know it very well. And maybe God is calling, out and calling us out of that today. Verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp, and his height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung in his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Here's the point. A huge champion has appeared, and he has some advantages. Number one, he's big. The enemy is big. He is bigger probably than everybody on his side, and he's definitely bigger than everybody on the Israelite side. He is a big champion. The fact that he is a champion means that, guess what? He wins a lot. He's Goliath, wins a lot, right? Right? He hasn't lost a lot. The only way you get called a champion is he's won a few blue ribbons or he's put a few people down, right? Everybody knows that he has a record. He has a record of winning as a streak, if you will. He has weapons that you don't have. You can look at the weight and the size and all the rest. You know what the bottom line is? He has weapons that the Israelites do not have. He has weapons the Israelites can barely carry. Let's be real, right? They don't have those kind of weapons. And that's a a problem. Do you know that in this period of history, Israel has no access to armor? they have no access to armor. The Philistines are seafaring people and they have they come from the the coast right along the Mediterranean Sea. I didn't put a map up here, but imagine if you will, Mediterranean Sea, the coast, right? And they and they get a lot of their stuff by trading across the Mediterranean Sea. I don't know if they're close to mines or whatever, but they have metal that the Israelites do not have, and we know this because several chapters earlier in 2nd Samuel it says this. The Philistines Assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as sand on the seashore. That means the guy counting from Israelite side got tired of counting. We have 3,000 chariots and they're double, double, double man, 6,000 charioteers, and a whole bunch of foot soldiers, right? Not a blacksmith could be found. This is out of 1 Samuel 13, 18 through 22, if you want the reference. Not a single blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines said, otherwise the Hebrews, will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow points, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. So we'd have a truce long enough that, can you get my, my, you know, I need my equipment ready for harvest. Can you get that? And they would sharpen that for them and send them away, and we'd fight another day. So on the day of battle, verse 22, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul... And his son, Jonathan, had them. See, so when David, who shows up later, if you don't know the story, David's going to show up and volunteer to kill, uh, or to fight Goliath, and Saul's going to offer him his armor because David doesn't have any. Saul has it. Do you also remember that Saul's a foot and a half taller than everybody in his army? If there was anybody who was capable size-wise to fight Goliath, it was Saul. But no, he's going to put this huge set of armor on this young man who, you know, probably isn't even fully grown yet. And he's like, "Ah, it doesn't work, right? Here's the deal. They don't have those kind of weapons. They, don't, they, can't, they can't match the weapons of the other side. In this particular period of history, all armies only had about three basic types of, of, uh, of battle, uh, of, of men, troops. What do I want to call them? All right. Number one, they have cavalry. They have anybody employed with a horse, whether it's chariots or armed men on horseback. The Philistines have them, but useless in this particular valley. It's too steep for those chariots. That's a loss. You're not going to use those. So anybody they have is going to stay up on that hill. Next, you're going to have infantry. That's foot soldiers who are armed for battle. That's Goliath. Goliath is an infantryman. He has his sword, shield, and, and armor of some sort. And then thirdly, you have projectile warriors. Projectile warriors are obviously going to be from a more impoverished area, which is the Israelites, and they can either shoot arrow or slingshot right? They have a little leather pouch taking stones of various sizes. The size of the stone determines how far it will go and what the force is on it. And they were deadly accurate with a slingshot. Deadly accurate with a slingshot, okay? Ancient paintings depict slingers hitting birds out of midair. The Irish were known to be able to hit a coin as far as their eye could see. There's even record of this weird little tradition among the Balares Islands, which is right off the coast of Spain, where the parents, mean-spirited parents, trained their children in slinging by putting their breakfast on a pole, and they couldn't have their breakfast until they knocked it off. Can you imagine? Can you imagine telling your child they couldn't have any breakfast until they won a blue ribbon at something, or did, you know what I mean, or showed some skill? I mean, you would learn, wouldn't they? They learn in a hurry. All right, I'm not suggesting we do that. I'm just saying that what we're saying is, and even the, in Judges, we learned that the Israelites were expert slingers, right? Among a force of twenty-six thousand Benjamites, 20, for Judges twenty-fifteen says, among all these soldiers, there were seven hundred select troops. They're like the seals, right? Who were left-handed? Each of them could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Now listen. Slingers might appear to be the most disadvantaged in a battle. You don't have armor, you don't have swords, you don't have whatever, but God can take what we consider a disadvantage and win with that. There are places in our life where we may need to hold our ground when we feel completely outmatched. Doesn't matter if we feel outmatched. God can handle those moments. Don't get discouraged by the size of the other guy and the resources that the enemy is throwing at you in those moments, all right? Verse eight, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man, have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. And if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man. Let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all of the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Verse 16, for 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning, every night, and took his stand. Every day, every night, he comes out and says the very same thing. Can I say to you that that, um, those kind of daily attacks can wear you down? Now, let's talk a minute about what, what D- Goliath is suggesting. What, what Goliath is suggesting is something we call single combat. Now, there's record of this throughout history as well, right? There are times when it's like, you take one guy, we'll send one guy, we'll let him fight. And, and ostensibly, oh, how nice. Now, nobody else has to fight or die. Baloney. This is just the starting gun, right? There's never, I mean, it's not like the Philistines said, okay, when our guy goes down, we surrender we line up and give you our weapons. Are you kidding me? They run. And so it's just a moment of, of, of just engaging the next part of the battle, right? That's not how it's going to go because what this really is is a contest of morale. It's a contest of morale. And the contest will signify whether your army is going to pursue or retreat. Whether you guys see your guy winning or not, if he he wins, your army gains confidence. If he loses, you decide that you're running the other way. It's really determining momentum and it's like a starting gun. Now, enter David. David, I'm not going to read all of this. It's a lot of, of scripture, but let me tell the story. David has already been anointed. He's just a young shepherd boy, but he has been anointed to be the next king of Israel. But nobody knows that. It's been done in private with his family only. He's the youngest of eight boys and he's at home taking care of sheep while his three oldest brothers are actually on the lines in Israel on one of these cliffs and his father has sent him to check on them. I don't know where the other brothers are four brothers are doing something. I don't know. But he, so he goes, he's taking cheese and bread and he goes up there to see how they're, they're doing. And when he gets there, he hears it. Verse 20, early in the morning, David left the flock and the share of a, the care of a shepherd loaded up, set out as Jesse had directed. He reaches the camp as the army was going out. This is important. The army goes out to its battle lines. The army goes out and shouts the battle cry. This is Israel. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he's talking to them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, steps out from the lines and shouts his usual defiance. And David heard it. And whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. The worst threats in our life are the common ones. The worst threats in our lives are the ones that we hear morning and night the enemy comes at us with the same things right we have bullies in our life that say the same things all the time who demean us who discourage us who taunt us and the things that we're struggling with are probably repetitive they're probably typical for us how many of you today are struggling with something in your life that you were struggling with five years ago too because the enemy, it may not be the same as your neighbor, but it's probably the same to you. Because the enemy knows to hit you at that weak spot, time in and time out, right? And, and so here he is, 40 days and 40 nights, the army hears the same old thing. And you're hearing a taunt from somebody who wins a lot to somebody who loses a lot. And, and you don't feel like you have a good track record of winning, and so you run from this guy. But can I just suggest to you that it's one guy Goliath is one, it is not an army of Goliaths, it is one Goliath. Because when Goliath goes down, they don't send out Goliath number two. They they turn tail and run. They run from the Israelites after their champion is gone. As if Goliath by himself was going to take down the army. You know what I mean? So he's, again, he's just a momentum swinger. He's not really the guy. But, he's, but they're demoralized by that defiance. What is the usual defiance that the enemy is taunting you with this morning? What is in your life that the enemy has the power to discourage you, to terrify you, to enrage you, or to cause you to retreat? We just got back from a leadership training, and one of the things that uh, we've heard it say, I mean, you've heard people say, you either have a flight or a fight mechanism in you, and, and he broke it down to say that our personalities are kind of wired this way. When we face a conflict or something that is a formidable obstacle in front of us, some of us hit that, and, it, and we get bigger. We puff up in the face of conflict. We actually present ourselves as bigger than we are. We get louder and, and more in everybody's face. You know who you are. And then there are others of us, when we're faced with conflict, we get smaller. We retreat, either to think or whatever, but we, we get smaller in that, right? That's, that's the sort of thing. And so what you have is a Goliath who's pumped up in, in this and, and the enemy is using him to make you retreat. But here's the deal, momentum is a huge factor. Momentum is a huge factor, perhaps bigger than any other personal advantage in this particular um, particular battle, and perhaps in our battles. And I think we know this, right? That's why the people who keep developing those apps on your phone, keep plugging in that streak feature. Do you know what I'm talking about? My my Bible app had that for a while. I don't know if it still does because I quit getting confetti and I'm highly motivated by confetti. When, when I'm reading my Bible and I read it several days in a row and they're like, congratulations, you have a streak of two days. And on the fourth day, you get confetti. And then I would get more confetti. It's the weirdest times. It didn't make sense. I get confetti on day four, day seven, and then like day 41. And I'm like, you know, whatever. I'm getting irritated because every day I'm, I'm wanting confetti. I'm getting confetti, right? So there are stre- Why do we do this? Because the people who develop that stuff knows that we're highly motivated by streaks. That's why 12-step programs are like keep track of how many days of sobriety you have. We are highly motivated by that. We're also highly motivated by a streak of failure. What kind of streak do you have running right now? Are you on a streak of hearing from God every day? Are you writing that down? You're like, I'm on day five of hearing great stuff from God. Or you know what? It's been 50 days and I haven't heard God say anything to me. Um, And so I kind of quit showing up and not even going and listening anymore because I don't really know, right? What is that current momentum in your life? See, Saul needs that he needs, King Saul knows that he needs a momentum shift. And so he does what is really a dumb idea, and he offers a reward. He offers a prize for one of his soldiers who will be strong enough to go fight Goliath. And this is what he offers. He's like, listen, I'll give you great wealth, and I'll give you my firstborn daughter as your wife. And, you know, yay, that we don't live in that day, right? Firstborn daughter as your wife. And then the third one is, is intriguing, no taxes for the rest of your life. Read it, it's in there. And you get no taxes. Nobody bites I don't know what they knew about the daughter. Nobody bites. Nobody wants wants in on this action at all. And so, because here's the problem. Courage is never motivated by some outward benefit of personal gain. That's not where courage comes from. Courage is demonstrated through sacrifice. Courage is demonstrated by what I will give up to do that. David is willing to give up his life for that. That's courage, not, oh, I get some little carrot at the end of this thing. And sometimes we mess up evangelism this way in our churches. We're like, oh, come, come surrender your life to Jesus, and your life will be so happy, and you'll, you know, healthy, wealthy, and wise, and, and prosperity. And what? That is not the way. No. How about come to Jesus? It is worth so much, you will give everything for it. You will give everything for your relationship with God and you will recognize that his forgiveness for our sins is so powerful and worth it. That's what's, in, that's what's intriguing. It's not, it's not this other thing. True courage comes from a sense of certainty about the ground that we are defending. And we have to know our ground if we're going to be able to stand on it. Well, David shows up and David is annoyed by the whole thing. Right? He shows up and when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here today? You can just hear the scorn in this, right? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You only came down to watch the battle. I mean, if there was ever an oldest brother line in Scripture, we've got it right here. And, and Eliab has reason to be salty, right? Eliab got passed over. I mean, the prophet Samuel thought that he was the next king and God said, nope, not him. God looks on the heart. Man looks on appearance. Eliab's a strong, good-looking dude. And God said, nope. Picks the little shepherd boy, David. So David comes in as a kid and gets anointed king in front of this elder brother. So, So there's already some background going on here. But here's the other deal. When people are angry or jealous, they will diminish your work and challenge your motives. He's like, oh, those few sheep that you take care of. You know, those three and a half sheep that you have to take care of. You only came down here because you are looking for glory or you're conceited or whatever. Do you have people in your life that chant to diminish your work and then challenge your motives on things? That's no fun at all, right? But here's what I love. Do you notice what David does? Walks away. He, he doesn't even engage him. He's like, what have I done? And he walks away. I love that. I, I mean, that's a whole message in and of itself, right? All right. But here's the problem. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sins for him. And David says to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, your servant, meaning me, he speaks in third person, I will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he's been a warrior since his youth. And then David gives his account of you know, his uh triumphs and whatever. Your servant, meaning me, has been keeping his father's sheep, and when a lion or bear came along and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth, and when it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. I have killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he, are you ready, defied the armies of the living God. See, I don't even think David brings any special skill to the table. Like I said, I cannot believe sensibly that he's the best slinger that there is. Israel is an is a, is a entire troop of slingers and archers. That's all they got. So there's probably somebody else in there with just as good an aim as David has. They don't still have the courage. They don't have the courage that David has. They don't have the fresh perspective. They've been sitting there getting demoralized day after day after day. David walks in with fresh eyes and he's like, what the world? And not only that, I think that, that he hasn't been long, around long enough to lose heart. And he's also completely indignant that, that they have been demeaned as the army of Saul or the army of Israel. And David is like, wait a minute, that's not who we are. We're the army of the living God. See, when we know whose we are, we know who we belong to, then we have a different kind of courage to stand our ground. He understands that. He also understands that this is a heart problem. Do not let anyone lose heart. He has figured out, he's read the room really fast, and he's like, you guys are discouraged. That's the problem. You have a morale problem. You have a heart problem. Do not let anybody lose heart. We will always be tempted to lose ground when we lose heart right? When we're discouraged, we're going to be tempted to do that. But here's the deal. God didn't create us for defeat. He loves a dark horse, and he's going to bring that in. When we come up from behind, the underdog, that's when God shows up so many times. So, Saul offers David his armor. David doesn't want it because slingers are basically like, you know, World Series pitchers. And he needs all that agility in his arm. So the armor is not going to work for him. He needs accuracy with free movement. So he's not going to do that. And he picks up a few stones on his way down the thing. And there comes, you know, Goliath with his, uh, his sword and his shield and his little armor bear, And it's really like taking, you know, a gun to a knife fight. You know, I mean, you don't even have, he, Goliath is prepared for face-to-face battle and David doesn't even get to that. We don't even have to do that. Do you know that recent studies have shown that a 50-gram sling stone hurled by a trained slinger had similar stopping power to a 44 magnum? Even piercing armor. That's how, now, depending on the size of the stone, if you had a big old stone, obviously that wasn't gonna work, but the small ones, they had learned to do that. So, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him and reaching into his bag and taking out his stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So, David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran over and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from its sheath. And after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. And when the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Israel the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Enron. Right? This single combat may have started as a battle, but it certainly didn't end it. It gives the army of Israel the encouragement and confidence they need to stand their ground. Now, why do we have to talk about David cutting off the the enemy the enemy's head? Here's why: because in a valley with that that where the army is that far apart, they they are clearly can see that their champion has fallen down but you know how dead is he to me from a distance you don't know but when someone separates their head from their body they don't know much about biology but they've never seen that get fixed do you know what i'm saying it's like okay Now we really don't have a guy. Now we know, right? So to separate somebody's head from their body is a signal to people very, very far away that we got him and he ain't never gonna get up again. And now they turn tail and run, right? So that's not only a war trophy, that's what they're doing to demonstrate, you know, evidence that that somebody has really been taken out. And so this gives the the army of Israel the, the courage they need to stand their ground. All right, now let's let's get to to the Psalms, right? I think sometimes we talk about how great David is in the story and I'm just intrigued by what it is that keeps us from standing our ground. In verse 20, David had reached the camp just as the army was going out to battle positions and making their war cry. That's what Israel does every day. And I think that like the army of Israel, sometimes we can get in the right spot. We can line up for war. We can say all the right things we can make the battle cry. And then we still run in fear when the enemy shows up. It takes more than just lining up and saying the right things. Here's what David says in the Psalms. Psalm 1, "'Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that the sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers.'" But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. And then Psalm 52, 8 and 9 sounds just like it. But I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. For what you have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people, and I will hope in your name, for your name is good. See, for David, our ability to flourish, our ability to stand our ground, he likens to being a tree, a tree that quite literally is grounded in the correct location, quite literally has everything to do with the roots of being planted next to a good source of nutrients, where it is that you are. Location, location, lo- great location. So, number one, I believe that we can stand our ground most effectively when, number one, we are grounded in God's Word. This sounds so elementary, but folks, we never get over it. We never get over needing to be in God's Word that way. The things that we meditate on matter. And, and David is talking in a time when he doesn't have access to half the Scriptures we have. He's writing scripture at the moment. He's got the the first five books of the Old Testament, maybe. He doesn't have much more than that, that he's meditating on when he's talking about God's laws. The things we think about all day long matter to us. What are we filling our mind with? You know, those of you who are on a health kick of any kind, I bet you're kind of tracking... Your, your bodily intake. Maybe you're keeping track of how much water you take in. Maybe you're writing down macros and carbs and whatever. And you, maybe you have a food diary. You're writing down every single thing that you put in your mouth. Can you imagine if we kept a mind diary and we kept track of everything that we thought about all day long? You guys are really quiet. The first service started laughing at this point. They were like, oh, I don't, I don't know about it. Could you imagine if we began to think about that and we were like, okay, what did I think about from, you know, nine until noon? I better write that down. Whatever, are you, I mean, if we logged everything we put in our mind, everything we put in front of our eyes, every useless controversy that we got caught up in, can I just say that fighting through social media is not standing your ground. No revolution will ever be won there. There will never be, there will never be fireworks and cherry pie and a holiday on whatever battle that you think that you just won through social media. That is not what, that's not what it means to stand your ground. That, unfortunately, is like playing Goliath. That's like coming out and shouting a defiance and hoping other people run and hide in their tents from you, but it's not, without being truly vulnerable yourself. See, David was writing worship music while his brothers are out there, you know, being submitted to, these, uh, to this defiance every day. They were not grounded in God's provision and his promise. Number two, I think we can stand our ground most effectively according to what David is teaching us in the Psalms when, number two, we are connected to faithful people. When we are connected to faithful people, David says, walking in step with the wicked, the ungodly, standing with sinners, sitting with mockers, right? That's not the way to flourish. That's not how you flourish. Association matters. And, and, and I hear you going, yeah, but Jesus ate with sinners. Or we're supposed to eat with sinners. Jesus ate with sinners, but he didn't keep in step with them. He didn't keep in step with them. He wasn't keeping up with them, right? He wasn't becoming more like them as he was meeting with them. Influence matters. And so you know the difference. You know the difference when you're hanging out with people in an attempt to introduce them to Jesus. And you know whether your association with them is drawing them closer to God or distancing you from God we know the difference there, right? And when that begins to happen, we have to back up a little bit and we have to think about it. Have I drifted because of my friendships and community or is my friendships and community pushing me closer to Jesus? Number three, we can stand our ground most effectively when we are present in the house of God. When we are present in the house of God. Now listen, this is not, you know, a message from, you know, a modern day group of pastors that are eagerly trying to recover their churches after COVID. This is David teaching in a time when there is no building to go to. He doesn't even have, the the temple will not be built until Solomon does it. So he doesn't even have anything except the tent that they're talking about that he could possibly be talking about here. But he recognizes the importance of being in the presence of the organized corporate assembly to worship God. He understands the importance of that. He says, I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. For what you have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people. See, I flourish and I stand my ground better when I make an effort to worship and praise God in a corporate setting. The presence of other faithful people contribute to my ability to thrive. They do. And if we're going to stand our ground, we've got to know our ground. We're going to have to get in the word. We're going to have to consider our associations, right? We're just going to have to do those things. And we're going to have to be willing to gather with God's people because that's where we thrive. Let's pray. God, I thank you today for the ability for us to assemble and to meet together. I thank you that we don't have to fight for that privilege and that we live in a place that we can do that. But God, at the same time, help us not take that for granted. There's been so many times and places in history where that's not been the case. And yet people still thrived in their relationship to you because they sought it out privately. They found a way to assemble privately. We don't even have to do that. So we thank you for that, God, we thank you. But God, this morning, I pray that you would would make yourself even ever clearer to us. And for those of us who know that we go to the right place and we say the right thing, but we're struggling because we know that we're still a little disconnected and we're not as close to you as we want to be. Touch us today. Speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, for those of you who are new here, this is how we like to close out. These people who've just appeared up here are our prayer team. And, uh, and they're here available to pray for you. Can I just throw in an extra word this morning that one of the prayer team members, there are actually two of them always come in, and pray over whoever's speaking and, and uh, they don't know anything about the message. They didn't get any tips. And uh, one of them said, I just have one word that God gave me for you today and the word is stand. I'm like, wow, you didn't know anything and that's the word you got? That's how God speaks to his people who are preparing. And so these people are prepared to pray over you and they may have some words that are straight from God for you. So would you rise to your feet? During this last song, you can, you can stand there and enjoy the song or if you want, you can walk up to any person up here and they would be pleased and happy to pray with you. So here's a couple of things. Where in, your life, where in your life do you feel like you've said the right things and you're showing up but you still haven't been standing your ground? Maybe there's someone in here today who feels totally outgunned. Whatever it is that you're up against, you don't feel like you have enough resources for for the battle. Come let someone pray over you and hear what God wants to say. Or maybe you want to know your ground better. You have courage, but you really feel more like a mercenary than someone who's really vested in your ground. Let's go into this next song. Come up and get prayer if you would like it.